Hello. Um, the story is told about how in the 1950s, the Dutch churches invited the American evangelist Billy Graham and his team to come across and conduct a series of evangelistic events across Holland. When the two groups met at the airport, apparently they looked at each other in absolute horror. You see, the Dutch Christians looked at the Americans and they saw the American men in their sharp suits and brill creamed hair. And they looked at the American women in their stiletto heels and their stylish hair and their beautiful makeup and their designer outfits. And they thought, are oh, these people even Christians? They knew Christian women don't wear makeup. The Americans are looking back at the Dutch in equal horror because half the Dutch men apparently had cigarettes on the go and the Americans knew Christians don't smoke. Now, the Bible is very clear on so many issues when it comes to godly conduct and, uh, and, and Christ-like living. But what do we do about the stuff where it isn't clear? I mean, is it okay for Christians to wear makeup or smoke, go to parties, drink alcohol, watch 18 movies, buy lottery tickets, vote Tory, vote Labour, go vegan, get a tattoo. Over the years, I've been told to do all of those things and none of those things by very passionate Christians. What do we do when Christians disagree? In our series in Romans, we come today to Romans 14 and 15. And here, Paul addresses exactly that issue. And I think what he has to say is going to really help us. I think by, by way of background, it's helpful to say that the church in Rome was amazing. In a world that was more segregated than ours, it was so diverse. It had Jews in it, Gentiles, men and women, young and old, slaves and celebrities. That's amazing. Where else in first century Rome would you find a Jew and a Gentile worshipping together? or a slave and a celebrity sitting down for a meal together. This was wonderful, but it also created tensions. You see, one of those tensions that Paul is addressing here is that Jews were becoming Christians, but they were bringing into the church all their cultural expectations about it, what it was right to eat and drink and what foods should be avoided. You can imagine how the Roman Christians might have responded to that. Now they might have said, listen, that's not how we do things here. Haven't you heard the expression, when in Rome? Well, you're in Rome. Do as the Romans do. Now we know from Paul's writings, he's not afraid to be blunt when he needs to be. So we need to take note of how gently and pragmatically he handles this issue of Christians disagreeing. He says, accept the one, in Romans 14, he says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Now I think that there are four principles that we can pick. There's a lot more actually, but there are four principles I'm going to pick out this morning out of what Paul says here about how we're to handle these kinds of issues. The first thing he says is that we are to develop a welcoming stance. He says, accept, welcome one another. 
We are to expect differences between us. We shouldn't be eager to pick fights or always have to be proved right. We need to keep the focus on what we have in common. The second thing he says is be clear about who your dispute is with. He's saying be honest. He, he, often in this passage he says, um, he talks about conscience and we can take conscience to mean, well, do what seems right to you. No, no, he's just saying be honest. If your dispute in fact is with the Bible, if it's not a disputable matter as far as the Bible is concerned, if it's an issue that the Bible is very clear about, then don't pretend your dispute is with other believers. Be honest and recognize your dispute is with the Bible. Thirdly, he says, be clear about whose servant you are and whose servant they are. First of all, whose servant are you? It's so good that we have baptisms today in every, on every day online. You know, one way of looking at a baptism service is that it's a funeral service. It's reminding us, and if you've been baptized, you need to look back at your baptism and remember that you have died. You were buried with Christ and you've been raised to new life with him. You laid down your life. Paul says in verse 8, whether we live or die, we live for the Lord. You are Christ's servant. You are not to please yourself. When we're tempted to do things a certain way because it pleases us, we need to see our fleshly body in that tomb and realize, no, now Jesus, I am living for you. Secondly, whose servant are they? If they're a believer, it's God they answer to. Paul says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. If they're not a believer, well, they're not even pretending they're Christ's servant. Actually, this attitude, this stance should make us very welcoming. Because what it says is you can come to everyday church and you don't have to pretend that you're something you're not. We can't insist that people look like they're Christians when they're not clear on whether they want to follow Jesus or not. And then fourthly, the fourth point, and perhaps the most important, is that we need to live for the benefit of others. That would make a great tweet, wouldn't it? You'd get loads of, of, of likes, wouldn't you, if you said, living for the benefit of others. You'd make a great bumper sticker on your car. Great tweet, really hard to live out though. We should live for the benefit of our neighbour, Paul says. What does that mean? I think the best thing I can do is tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about Rob and Sue. That's not their real names. Actually, I think they would be fine if I used their real names, but um, uh, I haven't had the chance to ask for their permission. So I'm going to call them Rob and Sue. Rob was from Zimbabwe. Sue was from South Africa. But they met here in our church in London. They fell in love. They got engaged. They were a great couple. They were leading a life group together, and it was a great life group. I can't remember how I found out, but a couple of months, two or three months before their wedding, I heard that they were going to move in together. And this troubled me deeply for obvious reasons. And I went to Rob, I, I, I went to him after church one Sunday, and I said, hey Rob, is it true I hear you're moving in together? And uh, Rob, I could tell from his face straight away, he knew what I was thinking. He says, no, no, don't worry, David, we are not sleeping together. We're really clear, we're going to keep ourselves till our wedding night. 
He said, we're only doing this for financial reasons. It's better just to have one flat than be paying rent on two. He said, we've been really clear. We've got two bedrooms. We're not going in each other's bedrooms. In fact, he said, we've got a mature Christian friend who's going to move in with us until we're married just to help us keep our boundaries. I was greatly relieved. But in the next few days, I continued to feel troubled. And I wrote them a letter, a good old-fashioned letter. And preparing for this sermon, I found I've still got it. I've abbreviated it slightly. Let me read it to you. Dear Rob and Sue, as you probably guessed, this is about your decision to move in together. I understand the practical reasons for this, and I was very reassured that you have really thought through how you're going to maintain your boundaries. But I still have some concerns about the wisdom of what you're doing. Everything you've told me gives me confidence that you could make this work without compromise. But actually, it's not just about you. The challenge of maintaining sexual purity in our culture is huge. Last Sunday, I was approached twice by believers struggling in this area. I wish last Sunday was unusual, but it's not. It may seem unfair to associate their situations with yours, but Romans 14 talks about doing things which may be fine for us, but risk causing others to stumble. I am confident that you could live together without compromise. But there are others in this fellowship who may follow your example and fall flat on their faces. I'm not saying that you must not do this, but I am asking you to prayerfully consider together what I'm saying. If on reflection you agree that it would be better to live apart until you're married, then I'll try and help you with the practical challenges. And it carries on. What do you think Rob and Sue did? Well, they went away and they prayed together. They didn't move in together, not until they were married. Uh, another woman in the church actually gave Sue somewhere to stay until they were married. That was a sacrifice. It wasn't what Sue wanted to do, but she did it for the sake of other people. Last year, Amanda and I got to see them again. We hadn't seen them for years. We got to see them again in South Africa. They'd just celebrated their 14th wedding anniversary. They've got two beautiful kids. They're serving in the church. Rob is working in an organisation which provides uh, employment opportunities in a black township. They're a great couple. When you hear their story, what do you think? What a stupid waste of time. If other people can't control themselves, how is that Rob and Sue's problem? Or do you see it for the Christ-like act of surrender that it is? Rob and Sue laying down their lives for their brothers and sisters. Paul says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. We're going to sing together now. And a couple of other things are going to happen. And then afterwards, from a passage which is talking about racial diversity in the church and the opportunities and the challenges that that creates, I want to try and talk about the elephant in the room. In uh, Romans 14 and 15, Paul says to a multiracial church, accept one another as Christ has accepted you and our ears should prick up. 
Our geographical venues are in London, one of the most racially diverse cities in the world. And our online venue is reaching out to all the nations, literally. It's not an accident that God is bringing the nations of the world together. It's not a side stream of the gospel. It's not just a happy coincidence. It's a highway. It's the main point of the gospel. You see, sin and rebellion bring separation. Separation between us and God and separation between the peoples of the earth. What begins in the violence between Adam's sons continues in conflict between the races and the nations of the earth. One of sin's worst manifestations is racism. It is demonic. It's a strategy of Satan. But Jesus, through Jesus, God reconciles us, first to himself and then in Jesus to one another. This is the gospel. You can read all about that in Ephesians chapter 2 if you don't believe me. And in Revelation 7, 9, the Apostle John gets a glimpse of where it's all headed. And he sees a vision of before the throne of God, this multi-racial multitude made up of people of every race and tribe and language and people worshipping God together, not in their separate people groups, but merged together in this wonderful tapestry of diversity and unity. We want everyday church to look like London and to look like heaven. And we rejoice in the growing diversity of everyday church, that we are black and white and Asian and Chinese and Korean and a dozen other ways that you might describe your ethnicity or cultural or racial heritage. We rejoice and we celebrate. And sometimes if we're honest, we even pat ourselves on the back and say, we're getting this, we're doing something right here. But the murder of George Floyd and the issues raised by the Black Lives Matter movement shakes me out of any complacency on this issue. There's so much that needs to be said and I don't really feel qualified to say any of it. But in the last three weeks I've had conversations with black friends and I've listened to sermons and read things from black preachers. To be honest, in the last three weeks, I say this to my shame, I've probably read more from black preachers and, and listened to more from black preachers than I have in my whole life to this point. And I say that to my shame and embarrassment. But two things I've learned. One is it's okay to start a conversation, even if you're not sure how you're going to finish it. And the other is that sometimes it's better to risk saying the wrong thing than to say nothing. Two key things I want to say in the time available, because I hear them from the Black Lives Matter movement and because I read them in Romans 6, in Romans 14 and 15. One is that often the most harm and the most difficult things to address are the things that we do because they come to us instinctively things that we instinctively assume, prejudgments that we instinctively make without thinking about it. There might be things about what a leader should look like, what hospitality looks like, a million other things that we think are reflecting 
biblical thinking, but in reality are just reflecting our cultural expectations. Paul talks about the weak and the strong, and I hesitate to do that because strong sounds bold and right and good, and weak sounds, well, weak. But actually, it is a helpful concept. If you, like me, are part of the racial majority in London, or in everyday church, or in your context, then in one sense, we have a strength, in a very real sense. The Black Lives Matter would call it white privilege because we're able to just assume the way we do things is the way they should be done. Paul says the strong need to bear with the weak and not please themselves. And when I reflect, I'm not sure we've always done that. And I want to say to you, if you're black or from any other, from any other ethnic minority group, that I've woken up a little bit to the realization that to make the diversity work that we celebrate, you've actually worked harder than I have. I think that's probably true. You've fitted in with me, even when I haven't realized that you were doing, with it, doing it. I think the second thing I realize is that it's not enough not to be racist. It's not enough just to say that I would never insult someone on racial grounds or I would never uh, disadvantage someone because of the color of their skin. That's not enough. We need to speak out against injustice. The gospel speaks out against injustice. It's not right that in the UK, sports organizations have got more to say on the issue of race than the church does. That's got to change. We are only gonna move forward if we get better at talking about this stuff. We get better at talking to each other about our experiences and circumstances. So our life group guide this week is going to try and start a conversation between us around race. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, please go for it anyway. It's okay to start a conversation, even if you're not sure how you're going to finish it. In fact, that is the definition of a conversation. If your conversations always end exactly where you think they're going to end, you're probably not conversing with people. You're probably lecturing them. And it's better to risk saying the wrong thing than to say nothing. We're going to take communion now. My friend Sean is going to lead us. Paul says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. So as we take communion, we look up and we rejoice in the acceptance we find in Jesus. And we look around. And as we look around at our increasingly racially diverse, diverse church, we celebrate and we say, I'm so glad that you are here. But we also pray. We also look up to that multitude, that multiracial multitude in heaven, worshipping before the throne. And we say, Jesus, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let us be a foretaste of that. Amen.